It's all about God. Welcome to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles Jr., author, pastor, teacher at Shiloh Church in Jacksonville and Orange Park, Florida. In today's text out of Psalms chapter 8, Pastor Charles will bring us through a song of praise and how David shows us how to see God through the lens of creation. Today's message, celebrating the majesty of God. And now, here's Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is our text for today. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. You may be seated. This is God's word. I want to label the message, Celebrating the Majesty of God. Celebrating the Majesty of God. Psalm 8 is the first song of praise in the Psalms. Psalms 1 and 2, which read like wisdom literature are the double doors into the Psalms. Psalms 3 through 7 are filled with lament as David cries out to the Lord for deliverance from his troubles. This sense of complaint continues in Psalm 9 and the following Psalms. But Psalm 8 is total praise. From start to finish, this psalm celebrates the majesty of God. The heading above verse 1, which I believe is a part of the inspired text, reads to the choir master according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. This is a song of praise written by David, Giddeth may be a reference to the musical tune David intended these lyrics to be sung to. We're not sure. But he addressed the song to the choir master, intending for this hymn of praise to be sung in corporate assemblies of worship. Indeed, here is a standard of what a hymn of praise should be. It's all about God. No wonder contemporary worship songs lift lines from this psalm. Yet they often fall short of the depth, beauty, and eloquence of Psalm 8. C.S. Lewis rightly calls it a short, exquisite lyric. 
Psalm 8 is a celebration of the majesty of God. The majesty of God is seen here through the lens of creation. In fact, Psalm 8 is the first of five so-called nature psalms. The others being Psalm 19, 29, 104, and 148. But in verse 3 of this psalm, note, God's majesty is put on display in the creation of the moon and the stars. In verses 6 through 8, God's majesty is put on display in the creation of the birds of the air, the animals of the earth, the fish under the waters. The last clause of verse 8 and says, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. I think that's David's way of saying, just in case there's something down there we don't know about. God made it all. Psalm 8 does not limit the majesty of God to what you can see through a telescope. In a real sense, Psalm 8 teaches us that the majesty of God can be seen every time you look into a mirror. Indeed, Psalm 8 is about the majesty of God, but it is also about the dignity of man. But this psalm is no poetic selfie. The dignity of God is presented here as further evidence of the majesty of God. This is the message of Psalm 8. The writer is declaring that all of creation is a call to worship God. Everything in the created world is bidding us and calling us and exhorting us to give praise to the greatness and goodness of God. The key of Psalm 8 is in verse 4 where the question is asked, what is man? This big question has baffled the greatest of scholars, and philosophers, and theologians. But the simple truth is, according to Psalm 8, you cannot answer the question, what is man, until you answer the question, who is God? And I think further, Psalm 8 is saying, you don't really know who God is if you do not worship his majesty. We celebrate the majesty of God, because God is great and God is good. Those are the two lessons of Psalm 8. God is great and God is good. Consider them both with me from Psalm 8. First, it teaches God is great. Psalm 8 begins and ends with a shout of praise in adoration to God. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This doxology is more detailed in the opening of the psalm than at its conclusion. Here in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist declares the praise of God's greatness verse 1, and the paradox of God's greatness, verse 2. Notice the praise of God's greatness. Verse 1 declares that God is great on the earth and in the heavens. God is great on the earth, verse 1. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In scripture, one's name is more than a means of identification. It, it represents a person's ways and nature and character, and so it is with God. Exodus chapter 20 verse 7 reads, you shall not 
Take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. David seeks to obey this command and how he addresses God in this psalm. Notice the double invocation. O Lord, our Lord. The children of Israel avoided using the personal name Yahweh for God. Yahweh means the self-existent one. Exodus 3.14, he says to Moses, I am that I am. They would more often call God Adonai, the sovereign one. But even that name was treated reverently. But note, David was so consumed here with the greatness of God that he uses both names in this invocation. Literally in the Hebrew, he says, Oh, Yahweh, our Adonai. This invocation is a statement of faith. It acknowledges there is only one God. Oh, Lord. No S on it, just one. And the true and living God is the God of Israel. Oh, Lord, our Lord. But this is no tribal God whose worship is limited to a particular people group. David says, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Hear him, David. David says that the name of the Lord is majestic, excellent, splendorous, beautiful, magnificent. What does this word majestic mean? It, it, it parallels the term glory at the end of verse 1, but there's a subtle distinction. Glory is the greatness of God's essential nature. Majesty is the open display of God's essential nature. You get it? Majesty is glory showing off. We ascribe this to God. The text says that the open display of God's glory revealed simply in his name is so great that you can't limit it. You can't localize it. God's name is majestic in all the earth. Psalm 100 verses 1 and 2 says it this way, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness, come before his presence with singing. God is great on the earth, but God is also great in the heavens. The end of verse 1 says, you have set your glory above the heavens. Listen carefully to me. Glory is not one of the attributes of God. Glory is the sum total of all of the divine attributes. You put together all of the perfections of God and what you get is glory. Glory is the brilliance of his nature. Glory is the weight of his character. We ascribe glory to God. We announce the glory of God. We respond to the glory of God. We exalt the glory of God. But in reality, the glory of God is intrinsic. The glory of God is inherent. In other words, God is not glorious because we praise him. God is glorious because God is God. And to make sure we don't confuse human greatness with divine glory, 
God has set his glory above the heavens. If you're jotting stuff down, jot down 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. During the dedication of the temple, Solomon says in prayer, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. They, Solomon there is acknowledging that nothing we do is good enough to fully honor the greatness of God. This is big. Because there's some people, no doubt some people in this room, who object to joyful thanks and passionate praise and uninhibited worship, claiming that it doesn't take all of that. But nothing we offer can be enough, much less too much for the God who sets his glory above the heavens. James Montgomery Boyce comments here, if God has set his glory above the heavens, it is certain that nothing under the heavens can adequately give him praise. Mark it down, church. God is worthy of the best you have. Psalm 145, verse 3. Psalm 145, verse 3 says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. You missed it, let me try it again. If God, Shiloh, was an average God, average praise would be okay. If God was a mediocre God, then mediocre praise would be acceptable. But the Lord is great, and he is greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Verse 1 then points us to the praise of God's greatness, but then in verse 2 we see the paradox of God's greatness. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. This verse is often referenced when a little child says something insightful, out of the mouth of babies. But this verse is about more than precocious children. The, the verse is meant to declare the greatness of God as seen in the paradox between strength and weakness. And then this contrast between strength and weakness is presented against the backdrop of opposition against God. Notice in the text the fact that there is opposition against the government of God. There's much talk about enemies in the Psalms that precede and follow Psalm 8. They show up in this Psalm as well, but with a twist. David is concerned here about God's enemies, not his own. He calls them foes, verse 2. And then the end of verse 2 calls them the enemy and the avenger. Foes, enemies, and avengers rise up against God. This may refer to Satan and his demonic forces of evil or some human king whose armies rise up against the people of God. But whether this refers to human spirits or spirit beings, the strategy is the same. God has enemies on the earth who seek to overthrow his government of the world. Keep your hand on Psalm 8, go left to Psalm 2. There the anonymous psalmist 
ask, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. Those three verses explain the problem with the society, the culture, the world we live in. Rebellious sinners are trying to get rid of divine authority. It's as if the nations have all met together to go to war to try to throw off God's chains and bonds. Before you go back to Psalm 8, note verse 4, Psalm 2 says that while man is trying to get rid of God on earth, God is in heaven laughing at man. This is what we find in verse 2. God has opposition, but this verse not only shows us the fact of spiritual opposition against God, it shows us the failure of spiritual opposition against God. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. God knows how to stop his enemies in their tracks. Wait, it gets better. But notice, I'm still in verse 2, how God defeats his foes. God establishes strength out of the mouth of weak, vulnerable, helpless babies and infants. Governments are in their great houses making laws to vote God out. And God is saying here, every time a new baby cries, it's proof I'm still in control. <laughs> Y'all not hearing me today. The week Jesus was crucified, he cleansed the temple of the money changers and the dove sellers. The children then came into the temple singing praise to Jesus. The religious leaders were indignant. In Matthew 21, verse 16, the religious leaders say to Jesus, do you not hear what these kids are saying? Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have perfected praise. Quoting Psalm 8, verse 2, Jesus declared himself to be the Lord God who establishes strength out of the mouth of little children in the face of religious foes who refuse to acknowledge him as Messiah King. This is how God always works. God displays his strength on a platform of weakness. That's why he saved us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 27 through 29 says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. God is great, and God alone is great. The rest of the psalm then says that not only is God great, God is good. I said God is good. But verses 1 and 2, I need you to see it out of the psalm. Verses 1 and 2 focus on God alone. It is not until verse 3 that we find the first and only first person statement in Psalm 8. All of it is about God, God, God. In verse 3 is the only first person statement. David says, I look at your heavens. 
But can you see how this personal statement is still focused on God? As David celebrates the majesty of God, his focus shifts from what is above him to what is around him. And as he looks around, he still sees the majesty of God on full display. Verses 1 and 2, praise the greatness of God. Verses 3 through 8, praise the goodness of God. And these verses show us that divine goodness is seen in God's care for humanity and God's creation of humanity. First, consider God's care for humanity. Verse 3 and 4 record one sentence. It is a question that makes a statement about God's care for us. Verse 3 is about the transcendence of God. God is infinitely above us and beyond us. Then verse 4 goes from transcendence to eminence. God is right where you need him to be. Feel the tension. Verse 3 declares the transcendence of God. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. For most of us, the lights of the city block out the light of the sky. And we miss the general revelation in the heavens. But Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. David looked up at the clear sky in the darkness of the night. And when David looked up in the night sky, he saw God everywhere. And listen to what he calls what he saw. Your heavens. Everything up there, it's God's heavens. It's his heavens because he created it all. And when God created the heavens, it was no laborious task. David calls the heavens the work of your fingers. In one sense, we cannot see as well as David saw. In another sense, we are able to see far better than what David saw. We have telescopes and satellites and space stations that enable us to see into the heavens infinitely more clearly than David. Yeah, I don't care what scientific discovery you make. It only proves David is right. All that up there is the work of God's fingers. The, the vast universe is divine finger painting. I don't have enough faith to believe all that got out there by itself. Y'all not listening to me here. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I believe the heavens declare the glory of God. The moon, I'm trying to tell you, the sun, moon, and stars did not find their place in the heavens by a big bang. Almighty God set them in their appointed place. This is the transcendence of God at work. But then notice the eminence of God in verse 4. Verse 4 asks the logical question the transcendence of God raises. Now think about verse 3. <laughs> God sits on his throne finger painting the universes. What is man then? that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. 
The right answer to this question is nothing. God is so transcendent that the creation of the vast and mysterious universe is child's play to him. We are rebellious little creatures that exist temporarily on a puny rock in a little galaxy on the far end of the universe. We are nothing. We are less than nothing. But the right answer is the wrong answer. The God who sits on his glorious throne finger painting the universe that same God if I could say it the way my daddy's deacons would say it touched you this morning with a finger of divine love and woke you up this morning and you rolled over to see the blessing of a brand new day y'all not listening to me here that the same God that made heaven and earth cares about you and me He's a good God. I mean, he, he got nations to oversee. He got rivers and oceans and mountains to, he's got weather patterns to orchestrate. He's got universes to manage. And yet he keeps on looking out for you and me. Somebody came here this morning looking for encouragement. Verse 4, if you are a believer, is a great encouragement to you. I don't care what you are dealing with. There are two truths about God concerning you in verse 4 that should bless you whatever you're going through today. First verse 4 says, God is mindful of you. You may think nobody's thinking about you. But God says, I want you to know, you're always on my mind. Psalm 144 verses 3 and 4 says, O Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Hear what the psalmist is saying. The healthiest person in this room is still just one breath away from death. The most powerful, the most rich, the most influential person in this room is like a passing shadow. We are here one moment and gone the next. Yet, God is mindful of us. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Be encouraged, friend. God has you on his mind. Well, look what else verse 4 says. God cares for you. I said God cares for you. The progression of verse 4 moves from God in thought to God at work. God cares for the Son of Man. But the word here, care, is more than just a feeling. It means God longs for us. God seeks after us. God takes care of us. The God that holds the universe with his other hand is taking care of you and taking care of me. 
As Christians, we should know this better than David did. Verse here, David uses the phrase son of man to describe human weakness. But in the Gospels, Jesus uses the phrase son of man to refer to himself. And in so doing, Jesus identifies himself as God who put on human flesh to visit us with his redeeming love that died on the cross and rose from the dead. The goodness of God is seen in his care for humanity, but also the goodness of God is seen in his creation of humanity. God created man with dignity. I said God created man with dignity. Look at verse 4. Again, verse 4 asks, what is man? What is man? Verse 5, beginning of verse 5, answers with four words. You have made him. I love it. David said, whatever man is, God, you made him. <laughs> but something deeper than that is going on. When, when David says, verse 5, you have made him, he is saying human beings are not evolved beasts. God created us. Psalm 100, verse 3 says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. God made us. How did God make man? You have made him, look at verse 5, a little lower than the heavenly beings. This statement is difficult to translate but easy to interpret. The Hebrew word translated heavenly beings is Elohim. It is one of the names for God. Predominantly it is used as a name for God. Sometimes it is used to refer to a false god or to refer to angels. In fact, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it renders the word here angels. I, I grew up with the King James Version of the Bible that reads this way. You have made him a little lower than the angels. But Elohim, the name for God here, I think the, the, the most literal reading is that God made man a little lower than God himself. The ESV that I'm reading from this morning plays it safe and just translates it, the heavenly beings. But whatever way you translate it, the meaning is the same. God created man with divine dignity. We are not a little higher than the beast of the field. We are a little lower than the heavenly beings. He made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and has crowned us with glory and honor. Glory and honor are both ascribed to God. In fact, verse 1 says, you have set your glory above the heavens. Yet the glory of God that is set above the heavens is also set on earth. God crowned mankind with glory and honor. Now listen to me. This does not mean, this does not mean that we are little gods. When verse 5 says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor, David is simply affirming Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female 
He created them. I'm tempted to chase that down. That's a whole nother sermon. But let me just affirm it before I move on. God created mankind. And God created mankind as one race. And that one race is made up of only two genders. Male and female. And I'm not going to argue that with you. I'll just say this much. That's in the first chapter of the Bible. If you don't believe the first chapter of the Bible, at what point are you going to believe it? God created man with dignity. And then God created man for dominion. The Lord did not create mankind to reside on earth with other animals. God created man to preside over the earth. He made us to have dominion. That's rule. That's headship. That's authority. This is a stewardship from God. Verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. Listen to this, church. We do not have dominion over the earth by some evolutionary theory of the survival of the fittest. God gave us dominion over the works of his hand and God put all things under his feet. We are stewards of the earth who are accountable to God. And notice the scope of this stewardship. Verse 6. You put all things under his feet. What are all things? Verse 7 and 8. All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. God has given humanity dominion over all animate life, from the birds of the air to the beasts of the field to the fish of the sea. This is a wonderful, beautiful, glorious truth about mankind, but have you caught that Psalm 8 leaves out an important part of the story? God created man with dignity and for dominion, but our original design was marred by the fall. The disobedience of Adam and Eve introduced sin and guilt and shame and suffering and death into the human experience. Each of us stands guilty before God as sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. We are made in the image of God, but because of sin, the image of God in us is tainted, twisted, tarnished. Uh, th there's a virus in our software that makes our hardware malfunction. And it has affected our God-given dominion on the earth. God gave us dominion over the birds and the animals and the fish. But in reality, the birds escape us. Fish elude us. No matter how many lies we brothers tell about how many we call. <laughs> Animals attack us rather than submitting to our dominion. But the plan of God has not failed. The first Adam plummeted humanity into sin. The second Adam brings humanity to righteousness. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 2. If you got your Bibles open, I'm wrapping up. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. 
The writer of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is greater than the angels. And in Hebrews chapter 2, it's in the latter part of the New Testament, verses uh, 5 through 10. The writer says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been, verse 6, testified somewhere, somewhere is Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, at this point, the writer is doing expository preaching on the verse he just quoted from Psalm 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hebrews is saying Psalm 8 is ultimately about Jesus. Jesus is greater than the angels. But God made him for a little while lower than the angels so he could taste death for us. My, my, my. We are sinful people. We live in a fallen world. We are weak creatures of the moment. We are always staring death in the face. We are doomed to eternal punishment if left to our own devices. But God. God intervened by sending the Lord Jesus Christ to taste death for us. His death on the cross paid our sin debt. His resurrection from the dead gives us new life. Warren Wordsby wrote, Christ's work on the cross did not merely undo Adam's sin and put us back where Adam was. Rather, it gave us much more. It made us like Christ. We got something in Jesus Better than what we would have had if Adam didn't fall. In Christ, I'm not going back to Eden. I'm going up to heaven. How should you respond to such an indescribable gift? Psalm 8 does not explain the dignity and dominion of man to boost our self-esteem. It seeks to boost our God esteem. This is why in verse 9, Psalm 8 ends right where it began. Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Songwriter said it well. Oh Lord our God. When I in awesome wonder. Consider all the worlds thy hands have made. 
I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe display. And when through the woods and forest glades I wonder and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees. When I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze. Verse 3. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Verse 4, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation, and take me home. What joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow. In humble adoration. And there proclaim. My God. How great thou art. Then sings. My soul. And I don't know about you. But I can't wait to get to heaven to sing it. I got to sing it now. Then sings my soul. My Savior God to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. How great thou art. God is great. God is good. I didn't learn that. Reading John Calvin, Martin Luther, or Jonathan Edwards. I learned it the way you learned it. At the breakfast table, at the dinner table, where your parents taught you to pray. Don't you put no food in your mouth before you turn thanks. And they taught you to pray, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. I'm finished, but if you know God is great, and if you know God is good, you ought to give him grateful praise for who he is and all he has done. Hallelujah. Thanks for listening to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.P. Charles, Jr., if you would like more resources from Pastor Charles or to support this ministry, he can be reached online at www.hbcharlesjr.com. That's hbcharlesjr.com. Join us again for Cutting It Straight, and God bless.